All right, we got an amazing guest for you guys today. We're going to talk about the cold civil war that we have going on with the Trump supporters and the rest of us. But he's going to break down the neuroscience of why it's happening. There's so many interesting parts of this. It's Bobby Azarian. He's got a he's a cognitive neuroscientist. He's a psychology today blogger. He's written for New York Times, BBC, The Atlantic. It goes on and on. He worked on a show that won an Emmy. I can go on. But Bobby, we got to talk about these issues. I'm super happy to have you on. Uh, so I'm gonna dive right into it. Um, so new Shit. poll out saying uh, like basically 52% uh, more than half of Trump supporters want to secede uh, from the union. Uh, we are really at loggerheads, what you're calling cold civil war, right? Uh, and you say one of the reasons for this is the terror management theory. So tell us what, what that is. Okay, so uh, I think first when we're talking about any of this stuff, we have to face the fact that the only way to understand it is through the lens of science, and particularly psychology, neuroscience, and social psychology. Because if we don't, everything that's happened in the last five years, the things that are happening right now, will seem completely random and unpredictable. And while you know these things, Trump winning the presidency, the QAnon phenomenon, the storming of the Capitol, while these things are like something from some wild movie. If you were using psychology to predict what was going to happen by thinking about the collective effects of fear and tribalism, you could have actually seen all of these events happening and it really wouldn't have been surprising at all. So when we look at things through the lens of psychology, we can really make sense of things. And to do that, we have to think about terror management theory. So basically, this theory says that our worldviews, and when I say worldviews, I'm talking about religions, national identities, and political ideologies. What these worldviews do is ease our fears and make us feel safe. It gives us a belief system that makes sense of reality. So what happens when we're fearful, when there's some kind of existential threat looming? Um, we actually strengthen our worldviews. So we become more ideological and we become more aggressive towards people that aren't in our group. And we become less critical or less willing to speak out against people who are in our group. Now, you can actually trace what's going on uh, back to uh, the period when ISIS uh, was really in the news and everybody was scared about that. And so Trump really exploited those fears, fears of ISIS, fears of Immigrants and became president, and then that scared the left because now we had an incompetent leader. We had this white nationalist movement that was blowing up, so that caused existential fear in the left. And when this happens, each side basically scares the other side and makes both sides more polarized. And when we get get onto that trajectory, there's a, a positive feedback loop that gets established, where just the division keeps increasing. And if you don't do something consciously to reverse that, then uh, basically we're stuck on this trajectory that leads us into something like a, a cold civil war, societal collapse. Yeah, I mean, you were writing about it before the poll came out, and and so and and so. And plus, it, it makes sense, it's logical. But Bobby, I wanna take it one step further. As, as I was reading your material, I thought, well, this is why right-wingers always start conflict. 
whether it's Netanyahu in, in Israel constantly starting battles, conflicts, wars in the Gaza Strip, whether it's Erdogan constantly picking fights in Turkey, and we can go on and on in Trump as well. Because the conservative mind is is more circle of wagons, right? And, and when you have us versus them, you're in the conservative mindset. When you have one that is based on hope and empathy and spreading out our identity. So I sure. I relate to you, I empathize with you, I view you as in my camp. Then we're in the progressive mindset. So that then seems to incentivize right wingers to start wars. Because the minute you start the war, we immediately go to us versus them, which helps elect mm -hmm. conservatives. You see what I'm saying, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so I think you see it a lot on the right. I think that's kind of the name of the game for them. But unfortunately, now we're seeing it on the left too, just because we are at war. There's like an information war going on because you have like QAnon brainwashing people, making them like believe that, for example, the like COVID or the vaccines or some sort of like bioweapon, all these crazy conspiracy theories and um so when that happens, we kind of all start playing that game. So I think we really need to be aware of that. I think awareness of, of that happening is really what gets us back on track. I think it's gonna take like a massive campaign to like restore trust and we need to start doing that. We need to start trying to align interests to see like the things that we agree on. I know you in the past have talked about like you know, some of the right wingers being concerned with corruption in politics and bias in media. And that's something that we should all be able to agree on. Progressives did agree, you know, those were progressive concerns until we had this new enemy. So um, we need to really try to establish the things that, you know, we see eye to eye on. Um, and I'm not saying meet in the middle. Because I think um, centrism can be as just as bad for progress as like extremism. Right. But we do need to start trying to understand each other. Um, when you talk about whether we should split the nation in two, just to get back to that, um, we need to think about the effects of that. If we did that, then America would probably almost immediately lose its status as a superpower. And I'm sure countries like China and Russia would love to see that happen. Russia might even go. Oh, you know, thank you. Like this is exactly like what we were hoping for. So we can't play into their hands. We can't play into Trump's hands. And I think we do that by realizing that the people on the right, the people who are following QAnon, they're pawns in a game. They've been radicalized and brainwashed. So it's really not like productive to like place the blame on them. We have to place the blame on the people at the top. At the same time, I don't think it's right to ban not, I won't say I don't think it's right, because it might be the morally right thing to do. I don't think it's the smart thing to do to ban Trump from Twitter and to take everything relating to like, you know, any sort of criticisms of vaccines off YouTube. Um, right. Not because it isn't a good idea, but it's just going to uh, facilitate the emergence of like right wing social media to the point where we're both isolated and cut off from each other. Yeah. And what that can do is just lead to like right wing care because then there are no social checks and everybody's, you know, they're all the extremists get together and yeah. uh, that 
even a more dangerous situation than we have right now. Yeah, that's a great point. Then we're in two different spheres, two different worlds, and that's where we're headed right now. And that's leads to uh, that road leads to disaster. But I also I want to get back to the science because uh, you talk about the fear triggers an emotional reaction, and you basically shut down your logical reasoning skills. And uh, you talk about the prefrontal cortex functioning. So help me and the audience understand uh, what. How does the prefrontal cortex functioning affect all of this? And how does fear shut it down? Because I'm super curious about that aspect of it. Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. So just to give like a brief explanation, because you know there's infinite detail you could go into, but there's two main brain areas that are important to thinking about like how fear like affects people and like the collective. And the amygdala is the part of the brain that responds to a perceived threat. And so it's associated with the fear response, while the prefrontal cortex has like a slower response where like the amygdala is just like this fast thing that puts you into like fight or flight mode. The prefrontal cortex kicks in after that response and it's supposed to calm the amygdala response and it's supposed to be involved in rational calm thought. So you might have this immediate instinct to, you know, Get tribal and uh, the prefrontal cortex, if it does its job, it says, okay, don't do that because, for example, in the current situation that we're in, it's just going to lead to more division and that's going to bring us towards disaster. So, um, really, uh, when, when fear is so great, like during times of a pandemic, uh, the prefrontal cortex uh, is inhibited. And the amygdala is just kind of controlling us to where, like, we're basically not in control of our actions. So, what the prefrontal cortex, uh, so what we need to do for that is we need to um, become aware, have a meta awareness of the situation. And uh, we can do exercises like meditation uh, to strengthen the prefrontal cortex. It's basically like a muscle. And if we don't do this, um, we're just letting you know the fear, the, pe- the, the people who've kind of orchestrated this. Um, uh, we're playing right into their hands. Yeah, so unless a lion is attacking you, the amygdala should not be in charge. The prefrontal cortex should be in charge because by definition, it's more thoughtful and, and helps you get to the right conclusion. It's when emotions yeah, drive us. Then that sure. that we make wrong decisions. Is that a fair summary? Exactly, and it's a newer part of the brain, evolutionarily speaking. So it is really like what makes us human, what separates us from lower animals. Um, and right now, it's like even the left, like a lot of these decisions that we're making. Um, if you think about the long-term consequences, they're not the best decisions. So it's really a problem on both sides that fear is just controlling us and. Um, so I've started this Road to Omega project with colleagues and friends and allies, and we're trying to design some sort of plan to uh, create a unifying worldview, align interests, uh, create a logical reasoning system to fight misinformation, and to give us a universal approach to determining truth. Oh, I love it. And if you want to go to the website, yeah, you could see the beginning of it. So we're going to like roll out different parts of the plan, but. You know, maybe it's like hopelessly idealistic, no, but isn't. I really think we have to try. No, it isn't. It's exactly the right thing to do. Uh, so everybody check that out. The book is The Romance of Reality. Um, so 
And that's not, yeah, that's nothing, it's not too related. That's, yeah, it comes out next year, but you can pre order it now. Thank you so much for mentioning that. No, no problem. But I actually, we're way out of time, but I'm gonna go over time here because I know it's unrelated, but I love that concept as well. So I just wanna ask you one more thing about that, okay? So sure. you mentioned that the universe might, might be a self organizing system. Okay, and I found that to be super interesting and that it moves towards increasing complexity and awareness and hence life might not be random and meaningless. I know that it's a deep topic and we're not gonna do it justice in the two minutes we're gonna talk about it, right? But I'm curious about your summary, what do you mean by that? So it's really kind of rethinking how we think about the phenomenon of life and consciousness. And basically what the book is about is that intelligent life is not a random accident. It's part of this larger cosmic evolutionary process. And intelligent life is really, once it emerges, it's the driver of this process. It's what spreads complexity and computation. So you can think of the emergence of life as kind of like the first stage of this process. So it really goes back to uh, the formation of like atoms and chemistry. And so once you get life, you have adaptive complexity. So you have a complex adaptive system that can learn and can adapt to changing conditions. And once that emerges, you have Darwinian evolution. And basically uh, on planets like the earth, we will inevitably uh, get something like the intelligence we have. We might not necessarily have humans, uh, but the idea is that because this process is inevitable because life learns from its mistakes. Life ascends and basically the leaving the planet and colonizing other planets is like a natural part of this evolutionary process. So I, I, I guess I would say that's the general idea, yeah. Okay, but does life get intelligent enough that it creates a circle and creates the rules by which life then emerges? Okay, that's a kind of meta question. <laughs> so yeah, I think um, basically uh, with the emergence of new phenomena like life, you get new rules. So you start to get uh, information processing systems that don't follow the uh, mechanical trajectories of Newtonian physics. So you'll see like a living system will start to cr- climb uphill. It will do things that uh, inanimate system won't do. So new rules come into the game and then as you said, like life creates new rules, and it's like this continual process of a kind of the system reflecting on itself, and like it is these levels of self-awareness that allow life to kind of transcend the standard limitations of biology. Love it. Okay, so I'm so glad you're interested. I had no idea you would like bring that up, but I'm super glad because I think it's like the most fascinating thing. Like. You can take it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Bobby, uh, we got to get you back on the show to talk specifically about that, back. okay? Uh, because okay, I, keep I, up I, the good work. Thank you, brother. I think it's a, the most interesting topic. So everybody check out the Romance of Reality, check out the uh, Road to Omega. And uh, uh, I think you're just right on all these issues. So Bobby Zarian, thank you, brother, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. You can pre-order it on Amazon and Target. So yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for shouting it out. No Appreciate problem. you.
All right, back on the conversation, another great guest for you guys, Jose Vasquez. He's the executive director of Common Defense. Um, Jose, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jake. No problems. So you're a veteran, uh, Common Defense is an organization of uh, US veterans and military family members. Is it fair to call you guys uh, a group that's for progressive veterans? Absolutely, yeah, that's um, the core of our values is uh, uh, progressive vets. We're, we're looking to organize that huge constituency that's out there. So let's talk about how huge it is because the common conception in American thought mainly driven by corporate media is that the military's, if not purely right wing, predominantly right wing. And maybe it is, I don't know. To me, it's in the polling, it's in the people's experiences. But you were in the, is it the army for 15 years? That's right, yes. Yeah. So what's your experience and what's the experience of your organization in terms of um, how progressive or, or right-wing uh, folks in the military are. Yeah, well, this issue is right at the heart of um, you know our approach to this work. You know, we we call that the myth of the conservative veteran. Um, you know, there are about 19 million vets that are alive today, and based on our research, we uh, can pretty confidently say that at least you know somewhere in the six to eight million uh, uh, veterans uh, across the country vote uh, consistently uh, Democratic. So we know that. Not all vets are, uh, you know, conservatives or or on the right, but certainly the right has invested a lot more uh, than we have on the left, frankly, um, in terms of organizing that constituency. And um, you know, I, I think the GOP uh, does a really good job of trying to co-opt that narrative. But uh, we at Common Defense are here to uh, to counter that, and you know, are finding that our message and our values are resonating with veterans across the country. Right, look, it's a matter of common sense. The military is really mixed races, right? So you've got black, Latino, white, etc. And so we know demographically in the country that minorities tend to vote for Democrats more. So it just is like a really surface level. You think like, duh, of course, there's a lot of people who vote Democrat in the military and and that are veterans, right? even if you don't go beyond that, but is are the folks who vote right wing that are in the military? Do you think? And I know we're just guessing here, but you have some experience in both being a veteran and in the military, but but also in running this group. Do you think it's the that the right wing like is more like pro war, pro conflict, and this kind of macho attitude, whether it's actually actually masculine or not, is Immaterial, but this myth of of macho, etc. Do you think is that what drives some folks in the military to be more inclined to be right wing? I could talk about this topic all day, Jenk. I uh, I think that um, first of all, folks that serve in the military, by and large, put politics aside and are there to do the job. Uh, you know, and I, and I think that you know, regardless of people's uh, political background, you know, racial, ethnic background. When you put on that uniform, it means something to people, and they really take that seriously. You know, frankly, the 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 there are issues of you know sort of conservative and even extremist you know active duty personnel. That's a that's an issue that the military is looking into in terms of white supremacists being in the ranks. I certainly experienced that when I was stationed at Fort Benning in Georgia. There were guys who had Confederate flags up in their barracks room, and that was you know not really frowned upon. At the time, you know, we're talking back in the 90s. Um, I think 
Um, now it's 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 not something that the military takes lightly, and I think the folks that are found to be connected to those kinds of uh, you know political ideologies, uh, you know, are frankly finding them, themselves being put out of the military. I think the 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 what you're talking about uh, in terms of how the uh, this sort of narrative about veterans, uh, you know, that has everything to do with some veterans organizations. I think that try to propagate that, but frankly, it's uh, you know, it has a lot to do with politicians trying to cozy up to the military and veteran community and um, use vets as props, you know, uh, for their political gains and, and for political purposes. Uh, and I would also say, you know, Hollywood has a lot to do with people's conceptions of what it's like to serve in the military and and, and folks have a very narrow view uh, of what that experience is like, uh, you know, I think it's it's understandable that people want to um, you know praise military personnel and veterans for their service, and we appreciate that. Uh, but I think it's also important to listen to the the veterans' experiences, and um, you know what we do at Common Defense is mobilize, uh, recruit, train veterans to tell their stories in effective ways, uh, and to use you know that that what we call the veteran mystique for for uh, for good for good purposes. So, how do you think Hollywood skews it? I mean, it's a very narrowly focused. You know, just look at all the war movies, right? It's it's a white dude is usually the the, the male lead, um, and and the perception of wherever that particular soldier happens to be deployed is is always entirely focused on the American soldier's perspective of of the conflict. Very little nuance in terms of you know. Depictions of Iraq, depictions of Afghanistan, or the people of Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think that um, it's just it's very one-sided. You know, the the, the whole Hollywood so white uh, hashtag certainly uh, applies to the way the military uh, community has been has been uh, portrayed. You know, everything from the lone survivor and the you know American sniper and and go on. I can list dozens of movies uh, uh, where the 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 lead is always a male. Uh, white male, um, and I think that that's a problem. But also, you know, people's understanding of what it is to be in the military. I think everybody thinks that we're all kicking in doors and and um, you know, doing doing patrols in the streets, and that's just not the case. The military is a very complex institution. People have a lot of different um, connections to the theater of war. Uh, and in fact, you know, some people fly drones all the way from Nevada. Um, so I, I think that um, that. Perception of the military is 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 very limited, um, and again, it's it's important to sort of listen to to actual veterans uh, and their stories. Right, uh, you know, from my point of view, Lone Survivor was a goofy movie, but I thought the American Sniper and Zero Dark Thirty were two of the worst movies I've ever seen, um, and mm-hmm. and and it just did it was like grotesque propaganda on killing the bad guys who were just generically Muslim and had it coming uh, with no explanation. Right. No nuance, no nothing. And by the way, I think it makes the American military look terrible. I think if you're anywhere else in the world and you watch American Sniper, you don't view that guy as the hero. You view him as the right. as the villain in that movie. And so it does the our our entire military a great disservice to paint him in that light. So I appreciate that. So you started the group during the Trump era, is that right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, we were definitely in response to Trump. We started as a kind of organic movement online. Uh, frankly, as just a hashtag, it was just vets versus hate. Um, you know, and and trying to counter the hate speech uh, that Trump was spewing on the campaign trail. Um, you know, we quickly got into you know 
kind of directly opposing his campaign. And so we started as a PAC, but now we're, uh, you know, a, a C4, you know, advocacy organization, as well as a C3 training program. We have something called the Veterans Organizing Institute. Uh, folks can check that out on commondefense.us. Uh, and, you know, we're here to, uh, again, organize that block of uh, veterans that we think uh, share our progressive values uh, and really invest in their their leadership and, and you know, plug them into the work that uh, veterans deeply care about which which you know frankly is not only about foreign policy and veterans issues you know vets are you know well rounded and human beings i have two children so i care about education and healthcare and you know certainly in the middle of a pandemic veterans are deeply concerned about the climate crisis and so you know we are here to create a political home for veterans on the left and you know frankly that hasn't existed for a long time in terms of a membership based organization and you know we're 250,000 strong that's a lot of folks to sign up in a short period of time. So that's that's amazing work right there. But so Jose, how frustrated were you all in the Trump era when Trump would constantly attack the military more than any political figure of my lifetime and specific veterans and specific members of the military and the military in general. And then he would be painted as a pro-military guy. I was just, wasn't it like an amazing yeah. thing to see? It's, I mean, cognitive dissonance at its at its best, Jenkin. Uh, you know, the way he talked about John McCain, the way he called uh, military folks, you know, losers and suckers. Um, you know, frankly, I don't I don't understand how people can view Trump or any of you know the folks that are that are his followers um, as as in any way supporting the military community and supporting the veteran community. Um, you know, this guy, I live in New York City, so I know what Trump's attitude towards veterans has been for a long time. You know, he was one of the most vocal opponents to street vendors, uh, many of whom are veterans themselves. And so, you know, Trump doesn't care about the military, he doesn't care about vets. Uh, you know, recently there was a story about Trump trying to sell uh, veterans medical records to you know private industry to sort of make money off of that and and that's just despicable deplorable uh, you know and, and frankly we got our start by opposing Trump when he said he was going to host a fundraiser instead of attending one of the primary debates um, and you know caught, caught the Washington Post caught him in a in a, you know caught him in a lie uh, so we were able to push back on that. All right, we got about thirty seconds left, but once you've got these two hundred fifty thousand veterans signed up. What do you do with them? You you organize them to do what? We have done, uh, like I said, we have a training institute. We have taken vets to uh, the Hill to lobby members of Congress. We did a lot of work on the impeachment fight. Uh, proud to say that we were central to ending the forever war. Uh, and we had a whole uh, forever war uh, pledge campaign during the uh, presidential election. Um, so we're here to you know plug vets in, train them how to make change in their communities. All right, Jose Vasquez, Executive Director of Common Defense. CommonDefense.us or US, also the most logical name I've seen for a website. So, Jose, thank you for putting the organization together and for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jane.